Hey, we are in this series where we've been looking at a character in Scripture by the name of Elisha. His name literally means God is salvation. And over and over again throughout his life, God shows up in ridiculous ways. More miracles happen in the life of Elisha than anybody else in Scripture other than Jesus. In fact, Elisha and Jesus, their names actually both mean God is salvation. We've been looking at Elisha's life and saying that his life is characterized by ridiculous faith. It's because of his faith and his trust in God that God shows up again and again and again. And so we've been trying to look at his life and discern for our lives, what would it look like for my life to have ridiculous faith? For me to have the kind of trust in God where he just continually seems to show up again and again. Elisha's life, his faith was characterized in part by his obedience, his willingness to trust God to to burn the plows and kill the cows, if you will, not to keep bridges back to his old life, but to say, God, if you've called me to it, I will follow through. His life was characterized by his commitment to God, his willingness to say, I'm not going to look for the off-road. I want to stay on the path that God has called me to, believing that he has something for me. Last week, we looked at his love and the way that Elisha would show love to those who maybe didn't necessarily deserve it, that he would extend God's grace and model holiness and be willing to take redemptive action that got involved in the lives of those who maybe didn't deserve it on the surface. This week, we're going to see how Elisha's story teaches us to have ridiculous trust in God. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to get out your Bible might be a paper Bible or it might be a digital Bible. You maybe need to borrow the Bible from the chair in front of you, but I'd invite you to get out a Bible and lift it up nice and high and say, I got my Bible, PJ. I'm so glad that you have God's Word that you can read and that you can understand, and I hope and pray that you do read it, not just when you're here on Sundays, but throughout the week and continue to allow God's Spirit to speak into your life. Go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 3. That's where our story is going to be this morning is 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. As you're turning there, have you ever noticed how sometimes things in life that seem like they should be kind of easy end up becoming very difficult? (laughs) We start out on kind of this journey, we start in a direction, and we think in our minds, this ought to be easy, but somewhere along the way, we find out, wow, this got hard fast. I uh, remember when I was a, a young boy, I had a, a, my best friend in the world, his name was Mark. And he came over to my house often, and we would hang out, and we'd spend the night at each other's houses. And I remember one time he was over at my house, and I can't really remember why we were there, just the two of us. But there was a day where we were there, and if anything spells trouble, it's two guys alone, right? So we were there, we decided we were going to go for a walk one day. We lived out in the country, and we were going to walk along an abandoned railroad track that was near my home. And there was this river that was there, and so kind of the normal path was we would leave the house, we would go down the long driveway to the road, take the road over to the railroad track, and take the railroad track uh, all the way up to where this train bridge was. And so we did that. We kind of made this J-shaped path up to the train bridge. And I don't remember what we did, threw rocks in the stream and 
boy stuff, right? And eventually we were done with what we were doing. And rather than take what was the normal route home, the, the J route, we started walking. And there's a field between the railroad tracks and the back of my parents' yard. And we thought, that seems like a shortcut. That's the easy path. We're just going to take the shortcut across the field. Now, the thing that we hadn't really thought about was the fact that it was spring in the Midwest. And in case you haven't been in the spring in the Midwest or haven't been there in a while, it rains a lot. And if you've never been in a field in a spring in the Midwest, we started off in this very easy journey, just taking a shortcut from the railroad tracks to the backyard. And we started and we went, hmm, it's a little bit muddy. And I can remember as we started going, there was kind of some mud around the bottom of our shoes and kind of getting up on our ankles. And we're looking at our shoes like, ah. Oh, this is rough. We might get in trouble for our shoes. So in the brilliance of our minds, we thought the easy path is the shortcut. Let's go faster. And so we moved faster into the heart of the field that had been rained on and plowed with loose soil, and we soon found ourselves in mud over our knees. And we were absolutely coated in mud. I remember we got to the house, and we were washing ourselves off with the hose. Neither one of us had a clue how to do laundry. Mom had asked me how to move clothes from the washer to the dryer before, but we're thinking we're going to get in trouble with muddy clothes. So we took our clothes into the house, and I remember we were trying to wa hand wash clothes in the laundry tub so that mom and dad, when they got there, they wouldn't find out and be mad that our clothes had been destroyed. It was supposed to be easy. All you got to do is shortcut the field. And it ended up just being coated in mud and difficulty and work and fear of the trouble we might end up in. Sometimes the things that seem like they ought to be easy, sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of the field going, how did it get this hard? Why am I drowning in mud? This was supposed to be the shortcut. Kind of to set up our story in 2 Kings today, the king, king of Israel formerly was King David, and during his reign, he was one of the most famous kings of Israel's history. And part of his claim to fame was his military successes. He had formerly subjugated the land of Moab. After his death, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Israel had required that Moab pay them tributes, if you will, a sort of ancient tax. You are subjugated to us and you must pay us a tax. However, after the death of King Ahab, the Moabite king was a guy named Misha. He basically woke up one day and said, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm sick of paying taxes to Israel, and I'm not going to pay the tribute. Ahab's son was a man named Joram. He said, I kind of liked getting the tribute. I, I liked the money. I liked what Moab was giving us. And now this land that is subject to us is deciding they're not going to pay the tribute. That ain't going to happen. And so he decided he was going to go and attack Moab. And as he looked at the different routes that he could have the ability to do that, it was decided that the southern route was the more advantageous route that would take him through the land of Judah. And so he got on the phone and he texted his buddy down there from the land of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and he said, hey, how about you help me and we go attack Moab? They're kind of a common enemy of both of us. And they were talking, they were chatting a little bit, and they said, you know what? We're going to actually, when we pull up Google Maps here, we got to go through Edom on the way over to Moab, so let's get the king of Edom to join us. And so all three guys are joining up together. You have Israel, Judah, and Edom. Three kings 
and three armies, all going to Moab to say, you've decided not to pay the tribute that you owe to God's people, and we're not going to allow that. We are going to war. This is a heavily weighted fight, three against one, and we are going to require you to pay the tribute. Let's pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. I'm going to be reading from the New Century version this morning, a little bit different than the typical uh, NIV. But chapter 3, verse 9 says this. The king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After they had marched for seven days, there was no water for the army or their animals that were with them. The king of Israel said, this is terrible. The Lord has called us three kings together to hand us over to the Moabites. Jehoshaphat asked, is there a prophet of the Lord here? We can ask the Lord, what's up through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. Excuse me, he was Elijah's servant. Jehoshaphat said, he speaks the Lord's truth. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, went down to see Elisha. Elisha said to the king of Israel, I have nothing to do with you. Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. The king of Israel said to Elisha, no, the the Lord has called us kings together to hand us over to the Moabites. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord all-powerful lives, whom I serve, I tell you the truth, I wouldn't even look at you or notice you if Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were not here. I respect him. Now, bring me someone who plays the harp. While the harp was being played, the Lord gave Elisha power. And Elisha said, the Lord says to dig holes in the valley. The Lord says you won't see wind or rain, but the valley will be filled with water. Then you, your cattle, and your other animals can drink. This is easy for the Lord to do. He will also hand Moab over to you. You'll destroy every strong walled city and every important town. You will cut down every good tree and stop up all the springs. You will ruin every good field with rocks. And the next morning, about the time that the sacrifice was offered, water came from the direction of Edom and filled the valley. Things don't always go the way we plan in life. Sometimes what seems easy ends up difficult. Three kings decide, hey, we're going to get together because this enemy nation is no longer paying tributes. So we're going to team up and three against one will be an easy fight. And yet a week into their military campaign, they find there's no water. We're in the desert our armies are dehydrated, our animals are dehydrated, and we are beginning to suffer. <laughs> I think there's some advice in the midst of this story that God would want to share with us about what we do when we find ourselves in these situations where we start off and suddenly find out, wow, this feels a lot more difficult than I anticipated. And the first thing, the most basic thing, is that we need to look to God. These three kings at this point never really stopped to acknowledge God or what he wanted in this situation. Joram essentially was greedy. <laughs> he said, I used to get tributes from the land of Moab, and I'm not getting those tributes anymore. And there was a part of him that said, supposedly Israel is God's nation, and so God must want us to go and get this money from the land of Moab. But none of these three kings are in particularly good standing in the eyes of the Lord at this time. Each one of them is kind of living their own way. They're following other idols, and they're not truly worshiping God. 
they get together to go beat up on Misha, king of Moab, and it's not really until the moment when something goes wrong with their plan that they really even think of God. They have their own plan, their own motivation at heart. And the truth that these kings were learning and that sometimes God wants us to see is that sometimes your greatest need becomes a blessing when it draws you to depend on God. Sometimes we start off in a direction where we think, I'm going to go do something and it seems easy and this is the thing I want. And all of a sudden it becomes difficult and it becomes hard. And that is the time when we suddenly realize, oh, maybe there's a God who might want to be involved in my life and in this situation and to do something. These kings hadn't even thought of God or what he might want for them until this moment when what seemed easy suddenly became difficult. We need to, in order to have trust in God, we need to look to God. We need to look to God rather than human strength, particularly just human strength. So often as we go through situations in life, we make our plans and solve problems and trudge through the mundane tasks of life completely in our own strength and the strength of the other human beings that we have around us without ever even considering God's presence in our life. If we have a medical problem, we go to a doctor. If we're going to make a major purchase, we talk to the bank or a credit company. If we're in the midst of emotional difficulty, we think, oh, I need to plan a girls' night or a time just to hang out with the boys and kind of work through this issue. If we want to advance our careers, we meet with our mentor or our boss or a guidance counselor. And the truth is, none of these relationships in and of themselves are bad. They're wise things to be able to lean into. There's nothing wrong with doctors and bankers and friends and mentors. God gives us these people and their unique giftings and skill sets to guide us and help us in life. There was nothing essentially wrong about the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom teaming up to go enforce the tributes that Moab was supposed to pay. The problem was they were only looking to human strength. They hadn't even looked at or thought of. What does God want in this? What is God's desire for us? And it's impossible for the power of God to flow in our lives when we're not even considering what he might want to do for us. For Joram, all he thought about was the tributes that he thought were owed to him, his, his own greed and his sense that I'm going to attack and I'm going to bring some buddies with me. But God actually had more that he wanted to do through them, not less. I'm kind of a creature of habit in my life, and particularly when it comes to my morning routine, I do similar things every day. I love to wake up, and one of the earliest things that I do is I stumble out to the kitchen, and on top of our refrigerator, I keep the box of cereal that I enjoy. Now, typically for me, this is the good stuff, loaded with sugar and an awesome cartoon character on the front of it. And I eat my cereal every day religiously. But every once in a while, this thing happens. It actually happened yesterday. I will go out and I will grab the box of cereal and I will just eat what I eat every day out of habit. And Christia will stumble out of bed a little bit later. She will come out and she will do something like yesterday. She starts frying farm fresh eggs and saying, oh, do you want me to make some eggs for you too? I already kind of ate cereal. <laughs> Sometimes we do things just out of habit. We only look to people in our lives out of habit. 
We only look to our own strength. We do the things that we normally do, and we never even think about, is there something more that God has for me? Is there something God wants to do in my life and through the situation that I find myself in? I wonder how many times in our lives we miss out on all that God might want to do because we don't even look to Him. We don't even think about Him. All we consider is our own human strength and the lives of the people that are around us. The other thing that these kings were learning is that they needed to look to God rather than to idle wisdom. When they finally find themselves in the midst of this valley and their, their armies and their animals are becoming dehydrated and, and death is becoming a very real risk for them, they go to Elisha. And Elisha responds to them with some sarcasm, a little bit of an attitude. He, he's not completely unlike his mentor. If you remember Elijah, when Elijah was faced with the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and they were calling out to Baal, asking Baal to light the sacrifice, Elijah taunted them. He said, why don't you shout louder? Maybe Baal can't hear you. Why don't you, you cry out? Maybe Baal is going to the bathroom right now. And he jeered and made fun of them. Elisha is doing the same thing in this passage. Because all three of these kings that he's dealing with are worshiping their idols more than God. When Joram comes to him and asks for, what is it that God would say to our situation? Elisha says, well, why don't you talk to, to the prophets of your mother and your father? His mother and father being Queen Jezebel and King Ahab. He jeers them. Go talk to your mama's prophets. Don't bother me with this. Then he takes it a step further. He looks at, at Joram and he says, I wouldn't even talk to you if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat. I respect him. You, I'm not so sure about. And then he ups it even more. He says, why don't you bring me a harp? Now, music sometimes helps people to communicate with God's spirit. It's a part of why we use music in worship services because it allows us to connect with God's spirit. But to me, this reads a little bit like if you've ever seen the movie Elf, uh, when the publisher comes and he's, he's telling them on the phone, I need a black limousine. I need the interior of that limousine to be 72 degrees exactly. I need cash in the envelope. You know, Elisha's kind of doing this to Joram. I want you to bring me the harp. And all of this is essentially doing what Elijah had done. He's shaming these guys for their turning to idol wisdom that all they ever turned to, where they looked to for strength and for hope in life, was idols. And Elisha is trying to bring some shame that they have only now begun to look to God when they're experiencing a problem or an issue. The question for us is how often do we wait until something goes wrong in our lives before we look at God? And much like the kings in this passage, we typically look to our idols for help before we turn to the Lord. Now, our idols are very different. We don't tend to worship things the same as they did in the 9th century B.C. Very few of us in North America worship graven images of invented deities that represent the forces of nature and emotion. But we still worship what brings us comfort, what we see as having power in this world. Money, sex, philosophy like empiricism, fame, sports, comfort, pleasure. Many times what we're choosing to do is trust in something that is weak but convenient 
rather than something that is stronger but might cost us something. These kings looked to what everybody in their culture and their day said, Baal will offer you comfort and security and provide for you. This is where you look for happiness and meaning in life. And Elisha was reminding them there is a God who is present and you need to look to him rather than what it seems comfortable. And in our lives, so often we turn to the things that seem to bring us momentary comfort, that seem easy at the outset without ever looking to God. I think of it a little bit like buying tools. My dad let me inherit a bunch of tools and has given me a bunch throughout the year. And he was a craftsman guy, so I've kind of become a craftsman tool guy. And whenever I've had to rely on them, they've been there for me. But every once in a while, I will need something and I will go out to the store and sometimes my family will be at a discount store or even a dollar store and I'll see a little tool that I need, maybe a pair of pliers or something. And I'll be like, this does exactly what I need and it's only a dollar. It's so cheap. It's so easy. It's right here and I will buy it and I will bring it home and inevitably the same thing happens every time. I grab that pair of pliers and the first time I go to use it, I clamp onto something and the pliers break. They snap in my hands, and I go, why did I waste my time, my energy, and even though it was little, the money that I had on this piece of junk rather than trusting something stronger? So often, we turn to what's easy and what's right in front of us, what we think is going to bring us comfort, what everybody else seems to turn to instead of looking to God. And one of the things that I think is beautiful in this passage that we cannot miss is the grace of God in this moment. These three kings who haven't looked to God, they've looked to their own strength, they've looked to idle wisdom, they walk out into this desert and they are on their own mission when suddenly they find themselves in trouble and they cry out to God and he shows up and he provides for them. And if you miss a whole bunch of this sermon, I hope you catch this. You've never sinned so greatly. You've never run so far. You've never followed sin so strong that God cannot reach you. You've never failed so bad that he can't use what's left of your life to be a success story for his glory. God still had something he wanted to accomplish. Because for God, there was still a motivation in all of this. This was still his people, the land of Israel and Judah, no matter how evil these kings had been up until this point, God still wanted to show them that he was stronger than the gods of Moab and he was stronger than the idols that these kings had worshipped. God still had a plan that he was working in their life. In fact, as we look at scripture, almost every person that we would put on a pedestal and say, these are heroes of the faith. Scripture tells us of stories of great failure in their lives. Abraham lied about his wife. Moses committed murder and ran away. Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. Matthew, who wrote the gospel, was a tax collector. The guy that Jesus turns to and says, today you'll be with me in paradise, was hanging on a Roman cross because he was a thief being executed for his crimes. The apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, persecuted and killed those who were called Christians. The key to experiencing what God wants to do in your life is not what you or I have done. It's what we choose to do now. Even when you find yourself in the valley moment where we realize this is difficult, are you going to persist or are you going to realize God 
wants to be evident. And this is the moment where these kings start to get it right, reaching out to Elisha, saying, God, what is it that you would say to us where we are? And God, in the midst of this story, chooses to show grace. Besides looking to God, the next step for these kings and for us is to put your faith to work. To have faith that works, both in the sense of faith that sees results and also faith that calls us to action. Elisha's message to these kings is to dig a ditch. Essentially, he says to them uh, in verse 16, they're to dig holes or what the King James will call ditches all over the valley. And if you think about the situation that they're in, these three kings and their armies have gone to war. They find themselves in the middle of the desert. They are dehydrated and they are dying. And God's message comes to them and he says, here's what I want you to do. Spend the entire day in the blistering desert sun doing hard manual labor. Dig holes all day in the valley. And in the morning, there will be water. You ever notice how sometimes God's directions for our life temporarily seem to make our situation worse before it gets better? This is why we call it faith, to trust in God. It's faith that God wants us to have. God is essentially saying to these three kings and, and primarily to Joram, if you show me your faith, I'll show you my faithfulness. If you take a step of obedience, a step away from trusting only in human strength, a step away from trusting only in the idols that you have looked to, and you show me that you are willing to believe and trust in me, you will see my powerful hand at work in your life. The truth is, only God can send the water, but sometimes he calls us to dig the ditch. The only way we can show our faith is by putting it into action. James, in his epistle in the New Testament, says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but doesn't have any deeds? Can that kind of a faith save them? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds, but if you can show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without action is dead. God often calls us to take steps of active obedience before we've had a chance to see his hand move in preparation for the miracle he wants us, wants to, us to see in our lives. But if we never dig the ditch we miss out on his provision. If these three kings listen to Elisha and they listen to the word of God saying, here's what I want you to do, and they say, uh-uh, that sounds too hard, they would have missed what God wanted to do. If they had refused to dig holes through the valley, when the water flowed the next morning through the valley from the direction of Edom, it would have just flowed and run off. And they and their, their armies would have perished. God sometimes calls us to participate in the miracle he wants to do in our lives. God could have dug holes in the valley himself if he'd wanted. But this was an opportunity for these kings to show their faith. And many times God calls us to be a part of the miracle he wants to do in our lives. Jesus does this numerous times in the New Testament. To the man with a crippled hand, he says, stretch out your hand. To the lame man, he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. To the blind man, he puts mud in his eyes and tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam. God calls us 
to be active in what he wants to do, to play our part in trusting him, to putting our faith to work. I love the story of Orange Scott, often credited as the founder of the Wesleyan Church. Orange Scott and some of his contemporaries had been dealing with the abuses uh, of the Methodist Church at the time, and particularly their treatment of people of color, and, and saying that it was they, the Methodist Church at the time said it was right to own people as slaves, and Orange Scott and his contemporaries stood up and said, that's not what God's Word teaches. We cannot allow this, this evil to continue happening within the church. And though the Methodist bishops tried to silence them, they stood up and they said, we can no longer stand for a denomination and a church that we do not believe honors God. They wrote these words as they seceded from the Methodist Church, saying, we take this step after years of consideration and with a solemn sense of our responsibility to God, we step into the breach. Duty is ours, consequences God. We are willing to put action to our faith. We believe that God has something for us and that God wants to do something in his church, and we're willing to put action to it. God wants us to have action to our faith. Where is he calling you today? What ditch is he asking you to dig? To say, trust me, I have something I want to do. Show God your faith by taking action, and you'll be able to watch him respond in his faithfulness. We also need to believe big and start small. The task that God gives the kings of Israel and Judah and Edom was a big task. He wanted them to fill the valley with holes. And what God was calling them to believe in was crazy. That without wind or rain, that these ditches would be filled with enough water to care for their armies and their animals. God calls us to believe in big things. And sometimes as followers of Jesus, we settle for a wimpy Christianity. There is beauty and something that is essential to your life about gathering here with other believers. Something that is essential about reading God's word and spending time in prayer. But too many of us make Christianity stop there. Just get together and hang out with some friends, read a book and spend some time in prayer. And that's all we ever look for. But maybe God is asking us to believe that he wants to be involved in things that are a little bit bigger than our lives. Maybe he wants us to be a part of raising up and training indigenous leaders in the midst of poverty-stricken nations who can serve their community and spread the gospel. Maybe he wants us to partner with families who are being sent to places in Europe and Asia where the name of Jesus is barely known or is illegal to even talk about, to build relationships that share the gospel and their lives as well. Maybe he wants us to be a part of realizing that there is a modern-day evil of slavery that is even bigger than slavery in the midst of the civil rights days. That there are girls being trapped in the hellish conditions of sex trafficking all over the world. Maybe he wants us to be a part of recognizing that we as people of God can open our doors to the hurting people in our neighborhoods and see God doing something powerful. God wants us to believe big. And the way that we do that is by starting small. You know how you fill a valley with holes in the 9th century BC? 
One shovelful at a time. All through the valley. God wants us to believe for big things. And the way that we do that is we start small. I'm glad that we have a church that believes in big things and that we do small things at least to begin to partner with some of our organizations and our missions partners. Some of you have been to Guyana and you've been to the Wesleyan Bible College and you have seen what it is like to begin to raise up leaders that are going to reach that nation with the gospel. We have opportunity to support and to encourage families when they gather here at our missions conference and they share about what is going on over across the Atlantic Ocean in other countries. We partner with Destiny Rescue. And many of you have been firsthand up to the Hot Dog Club to work with Shirley and David Duncan and to see what it is like to open your doors to those that are in your community. God asks us to do big things for him. And sometimes we never start on the big task because we're afraid. What if I get it wrong? Or what if it doesn't work out? And the truth is, is God is more honored in our failed attempts to serve him through building his kingdom and taking redemptive action than he is when we choose not to act out of fear or a lazy desire to maintain our own comfort. This is exactly what Jesus describes in the parable of the talents. I wish you would have invested in something. Even if you failed, just try. Do something for me. I love the way the prophet Zechariah says it in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Do not despise small beginnings. The Lord rejoices to see the work begin. I'm not sure what God may speak to you individually to get involved with. But I know that God wants to do big things in your life. I believe that God has been doing big things in Oak Ridge and that he wants to do even bigger things in our future. It will take us starting small. It will take us trusting that God still has something he wants to do and being willing to be people who put our faith into action. It will take us looking to God and trusting that he is involved, not just in our strength, not just what we can do as human beings, not just who the other humans are around us. It will take us getting out of our comfort zone, not just looking to the idols of money and sex and comfort and busyness, saying God wants to be involved in my world. God has something that he's doing. He's calling you to be a part of it. He's calling us to be a part of it. The question is, do we trust him? Will we see what God wants to do because we're willing to be people of ridiculous faith who trust our God, who look to him rather than human strength and idle wisdom, who are willing to put our faith to work, digging the ditch, believing big, and starting small? Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the stories of Elisha's life. And God, how you continually showed up in just crazy and miraculous ways throughout his life. God, I believe that in, in our church's life, we have seen your hand already showing up. And over this past year, as we've celebrated now there has been some big things where you have provided even miraculously for our church. And yet we believe that there is more you want to do. That you have a hope and a future for our lives as individuals, as families, and collectively as a church.
And so God, may you allow us to be people of ridiculous faith. May we trust you. May we look to you. May we be willing to be people who put our faith into action. God, help us not just to run into our everyday lives without looking to you and to miss what you want to do. But God, as we dig the proverbial holes in our lives, may we see your provision. May we see your miracle and your strength. May your power go with us that as we are people of faith, that we see your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you again of the uh, opportunity to worship God through the giving of tithes and offerings. There's plates as you exit, and you can give online at oakridgewc.com slash give. We are going to take a break, I will say, till about 11.35. Uh, we will try to start our local church conference. We're going to set a table right up here with our secretary. If you are a, a member of Oak Ridge and you'll be voting this morning, we want you to check in so that we can get a roll call on who's coming. So uh, there'll be that table. That was where you'll get your packet that will have your ballots to vote as well as uh, budget information. Everybody is welcome to attend a local church conference. If you are call this your church home, you're welcome to join us in the back. And we definitely want to make sure that you stick around for a few moments, enjoy, uh, and join us for the lunch that will happen as soon as our conference is over. So we're going to recess, reset for a few minutes, and then we'll have our local church conference directly followed by lunch. Am I forgetting any important instructions, Pastor Christia? If you have kids, please pick up your kids so that our volunteers back there can join the conference as well. We appreciate you. Have a great week. God bless.